3: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. The hawkish headlines just keep coming from the Fed. And yet stocks just keep rallying. Fed Governor Christopher Waller telling CNBC this morning that inflation is raging. The Fed has to get more aggressive. And now markets are pricing a much higher chance of a half-point hike next meeting stocks unruffled. The Dow and S&P having their best week since November 2020, like Scott said, while the Nasdaq is up more than 9% from Monday's close. But we're going to hear from someone who says you might want to sell this rally. And CNBC's Next Gen 50 the stocks most appealing to younger investors, having their best week of the year. Our trader picks two names that still have a bright future and two that are past their prime. But first, let's go to Bob Bassani with the latest on today's market rally. Bob?
2: And Kelly, best of the week for the S&P since November 2020, as you mentioned. And it's being led higher by technology stocks. So we had a great week with big cap tech. Salesforce is up 9% this week. Apple's up 4 or 5%. Uh, Microsoft is rallying. You can see that. Intel's also on the upside. Uh, but it's very choppy trading. And a lot of stuff is still not really participating. So banks, for example, you know, there's, there's a real problem here, uh, with the flat yield curve, two-year going up, 10-year not going up so much. This has given it, uh, the, the big, super regional banks like Zions and, uh, and Key Corp a really tough time this week. So that's been very choppy. Kind of in the middle are energy stocks. You know they've had the big run of the year, but even they topped out about a week ago, and they have been in an uptrend recently, though. Uh, so the big names, uh, the most uh, 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 move most on beta, uh, Devon, those kinds of stocks, uh, Schlumberger, for example, all on the upside. So just look at the broad trend, because it's really, really choppy the last few weeks. Look at the broad trend, what's going on. Generally, value is killing it. Value is on flat for the year. That's mostly energy stocks, but they're really up nicely uh, if you take a look that. Growth is underperforming, and technology stocks generally aren't doing uh, as well. Commodity is still the big winner. If you look at the Invesco Commodity Index, that's a big basket. Widely traded, DBC, that's a... Commodity futures basket, that's all moving uh, as well up about 30%. XLE is the energy sector. That's up about 25%. Take a look at the S&P 500. I just want to point this out to everybody because we are on a complete round trip compared to one month ago. We bottomed February 24th. That was the day of the actual invasion, but we were moving lower the week prior on concerns about that. So we've gone completely round trip. And Kelly, you want to know what's going on this week? I think the message post-Powell post-FOMC meeting overall is it's a little too soon to panic about the Fed tipping us into some kind of recession later in the year. Powell seems to have quieted that talk down, and that seems to be the main reason for this rally in the second half of the week. Kelly?
3: Great point, Bob. And we're going to pick up right there our Bob Pisani. We appreciate it. All right. It's Friday. So let's take a quick look and do a gut check on all the economic data we've gotten this week. The good and the ugly. Let's start with the ugly. That's going to be this retail sales report that we got. The core measure up only two tenths versus the one percent monthly gain that was expected. But remember, this comes after a really strong spending number in January. And this is data point number two, consumer spending intentions from the New York Fed. We talked about this earlier this week hit a fresh record high back to 2013. So even though consumer sentiment has been pretty weak, uh, you actually see people spending and saying that they're going to keep spending uh, quite substantially. Okay, also in the good camp, you know where this one's going, jobless claims, they fell again last week, that was new claims. The continuing claim series, it's like a four-week average, at a 52-year low. So no wonder Chair Powell repeatedly talked about the strong labor market this week. And this one doesn't get as much attention, but industrial production, important to point out that we do keep chugging along here manufacturing was strong last month despite a slump in auto production and total capacity utilization rose again and it's now higher than it was pre-pandemic so a lot in the good category this week in fact maybe a little too good let's flip over and talk about the data point on everybody's minds today it's this rebound in inflation expectations here you see them collapsing after the super uh, hawkish Fed meeting on Wednesday, then they've popped right back up to about 3.45%. That's today. It also uh, compares with under 3% back in January. So a huge increase here in where the market thinks inflation is going to be over the next five years. Now, on that note, Fed Governor Christopher Waller told our Steve Leisman this morning that he thinks a half-point hike may be needed next meeting.
4: I really favor front-loading our rate hikes, that we need to do more uh, withdrawal of accommodation now if we want to have an impact on inflation later this year and next year. So in that sense, the way to front-load it is to pull some rate hikes forward, which would imply 50 basis points at one or multiple meetings in the near future. Uh, I just think it's better to have a strategy of just do it on the rate hikes rather than just promise it.
3: All right, the Nike strategy. Joining me now is John Taylor. He's professor of economics at Stanford University, also a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. It's great to have you here. And where do you think the Fed should be taking? I mean, they were pretty hawkish on Wednesday to Powell's credit. And it's been interesting to watch the stock market appreciate that and inflation expectations still rising. What are your thoughts?
4: Well, I think they moved in the right direction, but not enough. They really have to move. And I I think the comments you just heard uh, replayed are Maybe another uh, a couple of .5s will bring us to close to three at the end of the year. Now they're still under two by their dot plots. So I think a little more is necessary. I think it's it's a very important because getting behind the curve in the past and in the future will be very damaging. So we don't want that to happen.
3: We're talking about and the consensus is starting to, to kind of come around to this idea that the Fed is going to three per, 2% or 3%. And yet the 10-year Treasury is trading last I saw, under 2.2%. So you're telling me they're gonna take the overnight rate above that level possibly in the next six to 12 months? What is the long end telling us?
4: Well, the long end is telling us they don't know. They're thinking what various people were say at the Fed, what the Fed will do. You heard one commentary, which is unusual, but I think it's, it's still not clear. Will their move above this 1.9, which is what the dot plot's telling you at the end of this year. I think it'd be much healthier and I think the markets would react positively. I think the economy would react positively. You're, you're seeing a little bit of that already in, this, in the stock market. But I think there would be a positive benefit to, to moving a little bit more now and therefore less necessary later.
3: Do you sort of agree with the Larry Summers' take from earlier this week? And again, he's been quite critical of the Fed uh, for being behind the curve. But he now thinks they risk sending the U.S. into stagflation or a recession. What do you make of his comments?
4: Well, that's... That's always the risk of uh, being behind the curve. Because if you're behind, you eventually have to catch up or inflation will just go bananas. So I think what he's reflecting is the experience. You know, we, we saw this way back in the past in the 70s and people say it wasn't the Fed it turned out to be the Fed and we had a terrible time. So I think that's, that's common sense. That's what we're learning. And hopefully the people at the Fed will pay attention to those statements so, coming from Larry and others for that matter.
3: Why do you think it is that a pandemic has unleashed such a lasting shift in the labor market?
4: I think it's basically very unusual, and people are getting used to it. There are people are working at home. They're not working. They're doing different things. And I think we have to realize it's going to be a new world in many, many dimensions. We're using the Internet more. We're using telecommunications more. I think it's going to be different, but I think we'll learn how to do with it. In the meantime, we don't want to just let inflation go because that could be very damaging. The hope is that if there's, a, there's some adjustments not a little more than what's what's in the cards, that it'll be a, a, a more successful recovery, a, a smoother one. And that's really what we hope. We don't want another one of these crashes again, uh, which would be very harmful.
5: And
3: the Fed chair himself, you know, when he was asked about um you know, his respect for Volcker on the in Congress last month, he was very clear that he has huge respect for him. He this week in the meeting made it clear that if they need to hike more than a quarter point, they will absolutely do that. So I just want to kind of end back on this point about the markets and why they don't seem to be taking that at face value. Do the markets know something the Fed doesn't about the economy slowing? Or why else wouldn't they believe that this Fed might be as hawkish as you're describing?
4: Well, the Fed, their, their guidelines are not that hawkish, right? They're, they're still quite low by the end of this year and into next year for that matter. So you haven't seen this this change. You know, let me say the, the Fed took out the, all the references, the policy rules in its last report. I, I think that was a kind of a shock. And now they're put, they're thinking of putting them back back in. Jay Powell said, don't worry, we'll put them back in in the future. So the, it's important because those rules have been a good guideline. And when the Fed deviates them, the biggest deviation we've ever seen right now hmm. is damaging. And, and so getting back to this, I call it rules-based policy, but call it what you want, will be a better situation. And where would
3: your Taylor rule say the policy rate should be right now?
4: About five.
3: Five percent?
4: Yes. Well,
3: is, there any, is there any reason why they shouldn't take that uh, at face value?
4: Yes, yes. I, I mean, my says so let's get to three at the end of this year rather than still under two see how it goes. Uh, but if they if they delay, uh, you know, the there's been lots of adjustments. Even that five is taken into account the work that John Williams has done, uh, which is a lower equilibrium rate, if you like. It's taken into account the different situation in the economy. It's taken into account that possibly inflation will come down. It's taken into account that some of the increases in inflation we've seen recently are related to Ukraine and Russia, what's happening. All those things say, well, let's get to three at the end of this year. And then I think it'll probably be a little bit more than that before we're done. But we'll have to see.
3: Absolutely fascinating. John Taylor, thanks for your time today. Thank you. We appreciate it. Well, if you're uh, surprised by how strong the market has held up to the hawkish Fed talk this week, maybe you shouldn't be. My next guest says, historically, Fed tightening hasn't been bad for markets. Paul Hickey joins me now. He is the co-founder of Bespoke Investment Group. I don't know, Paul. I mean, if if we were talking about John Taylor hawkish, that would be a different story, right?
6: Well, yeah, that would be a much different story. And so, I mean, that's part of the point. Uh, What the Fed did this week is they basically moved up to what the market expectations were. So, uh, it, you know, it, sure, was it hawkish relative to this Fed? Yes, but the market was pricing in a certain a level of rates and, and rate moves going forward. And that's basically what we got. So um, I think that is one thing to focus on. And then going out to the end of this year, rates will still be relatively low given the economic circumstances.
3: What about the fact that it might be different this time because we're not in a, you know economic environment like we were after the financial crisis? Um, obviously, maybe we have to go back to something a few decades prior to that for a similar inflation landscape.
6: Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's always different uh, this time. And I, and I think to your point, uh, you know, you look back. So the median gain during a Fed tightening cycle is going back to 1994 is about six percent. Well, we've done that this week. So um, yeah. uh, on that point, you can say that you can you can say that we're already there. But I think um, it's always different this time. Uh, there's also a lot of things going on in the market right now that that are a lot <clears throat> that, that that are, that are going to play out and have an impact on what Fed policy is. You know, ben Bernanke once said that, uh, you know, forecasting the economy is like working on a car with the engine running. Uh, you know, this is more like an Apollo 13 mission, I think, uh, you know, trying to play with all the moving parts, what you have, the tools you have, and and get out smoothly. So I think uh, there's there's a lot to um, focus on here. And, and no one really knows how this is going to play out here. We're in sort of uncharted territory. But what we do is, you know, rather than give our opinions, we'll focus on what the market is is telling us, and the market is uh, pretty comfortable with what's ha- with with what has come out this week. Yeah. Uh, you know, four back four straight days of Nasdaq one percent gains after a fifty two week low. Uh, that's only happened one other time back in nineteen eighty. So, um, and when you just have back to back to back one percent gains following a fifty two week low, forward returns have been pretty good for the market. While short term, you have tended to see volatility. But looking at six to 12 months, you tend to see uh, more improved returns and, and things getting back on track.
3: And I, I like what you're saying here about energy and technology. You know, and, and here's something that is a little unique. Typically, those sectors both do well and post gains of yeah. more than 20 percent in a tightening cycle. But obviously, right now, technology is sitting this one out.
6: Yeah, well, technology since the Fed hiked has actually done great uh, in the last three days. Um, But so it's interesting because those are the two best performing sectors. But this year, they've been more inversely correlated than probably any other point in history. You know, every day day that energy goes up, tech goes down and vice versa. So, I mean, what we're looking at in this market in the short term is we're tending to focus on, uh, you know, when things start to get a little ahead of themselves, lighten up. And when things start to, you know, be, be too beaten down to, you, you know, dip in and, and add some exposure. So in the technology sector, uh, two names that looked interesting um, in the middle of the week uh, were Qualcomm and Broadcom. You know, they're not the highest growth uh, semiconductor names, but they're, uh, they pay pretty good dividends. So they're somewhat insulated from a major swing. And the dividends are pretty safe with these companies. They have the earnings to support those dividends. So I I think, you know, if you're taking somewhat a conservative approach to add exposure, those two names uh, uh, look interesting.
3: Well, there's something intriguing in what you're describing here, because you're right. Look at technology over the past several sessions, including uh, the session after the Fed's hike. Do you think that maybe we could be seeing uh, a repeat of history where technology actually performs pretty well, and kind of puts behind it the terrible start to the year that it's had.
6: Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. So I mean, we got to the rate hike, but everybody knew what was coming. What was coming Wednesday from the Federal Reserve, we knew where the rate hike was going to be. We we're going to get uh, more hawkish um, uh, outlook in the summary of economic projections. So the market priced a lot of that in. So I mean, we had the one of the worst starts to the year for the U.S. equity market. Um, in history, and we had one of the worst starts for technology. Historically, when you see those through the first uh, two and a half months of the year, forward returns have been better, and so uh, the market does tend to price those things in. And so, you know, they were oversold heading into this week. Uh, you know, you want to step in when things are getting to extreme levels, but you know, right here after four straight days of one percent gains you know, hold off for a little bit. Make sure to see that these down short-term downtrends are broken before you start to, you know, give the benefit of the doubt more to this rally.
3: Love the perspective, uh, the historical perspective, Paul. A lot to chew over there. We really appreciate it. Thanks,
6: Kelly. Have a good weekend.
3: You too. Paul Hickey from Bespoke Investment Group. All right. Coming up, higher rates have already started weighing on housing, that's for sure. According to last month's data where we saw home sales take a dip and the average rate on the 30-year fixed mortgage now at 4.5%, will it spoil the spring selling season? We'll ask the CEO of Coldwell Banker next. Plus the CNBC Next Gen 50 index on pace for its best week in a year. There are all its components. Ahead will tell you the names driving the gains and the ones our trader likes for the longer run. And as we head to break, a quick check on markets. At session highs right now, that's a 25-point gain for the Dow. But there's the NASDAQ once again up more than 1% as we were just discussing. We're back in a moment.
0: People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Jenny! Or starting your dream business welcome to Connie's coffee how may I help you AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds that's why the younger you are the more you need aARP start planning today at aarp.org/ money tools what's on the horizon for financial markets?
3: Welcome back. Existing home sales slumping more than 7% in February just from the prior month. They're now down about 2.5% from a year ago. These sales were also likely underway back when mortgage rates were hovering around 3.25%. Look at that increase behind me. Rates have been on the rise. They're now around 4.5%. And how much should we expect that to further dent the housing market? Joining me now is the CEO of Coldwell Banker, Ryan Gorman. Ryan, it's great to have you. And it's like the best of times and I guess the best of times for... Well, but you still don't have any inventory, and a lot of people feel like they still can't afford you know, or get into a house. So do we need this correction?
7: I wouldn't say correction. I think we're still in a boom, certainly not a correction, and definitely not a bust. But I do think uh, what you've cited is true. Home demand, buyer demand, is so incredibly strong that uh, the most common reaction I've seen so far from buyers to rates ticking up is, I hope this keeps other people home <laughs> so that I'll have less competition in bidding, because we still definitely have multiple offer scenarios are absolutely the norm demands way outstripping supply as you mentioned inventory is extremely low homes are only staying on the market for about 18 days right now that's the biggest driver it's not as though no one's selling their home more than 6 million home transactions are taking place but once they put that listing on it's only staying on for about two and a half weeks so buyers says, certainly have their work cut out for them and
3: how does that 18 days compare with normal And and where was it at the absolute sort of low point or is 18 days the low point
7: We're pretty close to the low. I think we got flirted with 17 days at one point in time, but kind of that 17 to 19 range is where we've been for a little while now, which is uh, historic lows. So typically we're looking at twice or more than that in a more balanced market. Uh, You you used to have the time to be able to go and view a number of houses maybe a week from now or set up appointments. Now you really need to strike while the iron's hot, hopefully working with a great agent who's got their pulse on the market. And when you do, you're going to be informed about an opportunity. You need to be well prepared, already underwritten, have your financing lined up and be able to make the strongest possible offer to step into that home. So it's an extremely competitive market. But again, more than six million homeowners are winning in that market every year. And we're still at that rate today. So it can be done.
3: The quandary, I think, is well illustrated in the existing home sales report this morning, which showed, like you said, not a ton of inventory or at least not a ton of available inventory. It turns over very quickly. And yet yep. uh, home prices are still going up. So we have home prices still going up mortgage rates now higher. So the affordability issue is getting worse before anybody might hope it gets better.
7: There's certainly affordability challenges relative to the very most recent past relative to a month or two ago related to rates. But keep in mind, affordability has still increased in many areas because of the internal migration. So for the most part, Hmm. the moves that we have happening today are oftentimes individuals who are accelerating moves to perhaps lower cost destinations, maybe accelerating a move that we're going to make five or 10 years from now as they plan for retirement perhaps. So you have areas like for instance a lot of the uh, largest multifamily players out there are reporting that even though they've increased their rental rates the affordability of their units relative to the income of the residents has increased as they're internally migrating throughout the country. Individuals have the opportunity to work a little more remotely than they did before so there's still an opportunity to step into a more affordable home even though prices have increased and of course. Some real wage growth helps there too.
3: It's fascinating because you actually just answered the question I asked the economist John Taylor last segment, which was why did the pandemic, a temporary phenomenon, unleash this lasting change in the labor market? And your answer about housing suggests what changed. Do you think people will be able to continue this kind of work from home trend that started? Or are we gonna run into, and I wonder about this with a lot of people who I know, a boomerang effect where all of a sudden they feel like they have to or they need to or they got to get back to those jobs in the bigger markets. And this Mm. didn't turn out to be, you know, sort of the lasting change they were hoping.
7: There's certainly some magic that happens when people are together. So I very much believe in that. We've even converted our headquarters over to space for people to really get together and to work together, not just to show up and do solo work every day. However, I also think employers are Perhaps permanently moving to a place where in a competitive labor economy you've got to allow some flexibility so even if someone has a workplace they're going to three days a week. That's a pretty big difference from five and it may allow them to move maybe twenty minutes a little farther out a little farther on the train line a little bit more by car perhaps and that allows them to step into considerably more affordable housing if indeed that's what they're looking for. We also have the Coldmaker launched our our dream campaign here on March Madison across social and that's really focused on Coldmaker.com. individuals going and being able to compare different cities and sort of dream with some data and then ultimately with an agent. What it's like to compare where I'm living today to where I might live in the future, the response has been overwhelming because I think there are people saying, if I can work a little more remotely, why don't I work where I love?
3: Oh, interesting. I'm now, you know, he's going to be watching basketball. I'm going to be looking at your uh, at your dream data or whatever you're calling it. Uh, Ryan, is we really appreciate you giving us a sense on the ground still of what's happening. Thanks so much for your time.
7: Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Kelly. Ryan
3: Gorman is the CEO of Coldwell Banker. Still ahead, it's the first triple witching day of the year, so-called, when three different sets of futures and options expire on the same day. We'll take a closer look at those contracts and what they may signal about the rally. But first is another wave of COVID on its way to the U.S. We'll bring you the latest on cases and hospitalizations in Europe and what health officials are saying about the Omicron subvariant that's gaining steam across the country. Welcome back to the exchange. 1.4% gain for the Nasdaq today. Pretty extraordinary. Meantime, the Dow has recovered from a 201-point loss to a gain of about 69. Let's check on the sectors for the week. And you see consumer discretionary, tech, and financials, the biggest outperformers. Again, if you missed it, we had a great chat with Paul Hickey a little bit uh, a short while ago about technology up 7%, uh, even beating the financials. Energy having its worst week of the year, down about 4%. WTI holding above $100 a barrel today, but still down 5% since Monday. You can see some of these names there. On the flip side, the semiconductors are set to end the week higher. The SMH flirting with its best week in a year and a half. Every single component is still lower so far for 2022. And the Arc Innovation ETF, the ark it's actually having its best week ever after a rough stretch. Let's take a look at the top five holdings this week. Here's the chart. Uh, You can see names like Roku, Tesla, Teladoc, Zoom, and Coinbase. And Netflix is also set to snap a five-week losing streak with its best week in over a year. Shares down about 4% for the month of March, though, and they're on pace for their fifth straight month of declines, its worst losing streak since the year it went public. Can you guess it? back in 2002 so again a strong week against what's been a difficult several months let's get to rahel solomon now for a cnbc news update rahel
8: hi kelly here's what's happening at this hour We're at the u.n security council today russia's ambassador again accusing ukraine of having a biological weapons program supported by the u.s speaking after the meeting u.s ambassador linda thomas greenfield denounced russia for using the u.n forum to in her words spread its propaganda to justify its brutal attack on ukraine
2: we know this because it's a well-worn playbook. Just one week ago, they convened the council under precisely the same pretenses, and we heard a litany of bombastic and preposterous lies.
8: A Gulfstream private jet used by Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich is one of nearly 100 Boeing airplanes that the U.S. says are being effectively grounded. Reuters reports that the Commerce Department is warning that any refueling maintenance or repair of the planes is a violation of U.S. export controls. And the House of Representatives has passed a bill banning discrimination based on a person's texture or style of hair. The legislation says that people of African descent are routinely deprived of educational and employment opportunities for wearing natural or protective hairstyles. Long overdue. And tonight on the news, Washington debates whether the U.S. needs to spend billions to develop hypersonic weapons to match Russia and China. Kelly, listen us go
3: All right, Rahel, thank you so much. Coming up, the CNBC Next Gen 50 Index it tracks names integral to the lives and careers of millennials and Gen Z. And it's on pace for its best week in a year. This name is the best performer, up 36% just since Monday. We'll reveal it next. Welcome back. The rally in growth names pushing our CNBC Next Gen 50 index to its best week in a year, up more than 12% since Monday. This is chock full of names geared towards millennial and Gen Z investors from tech, to cannabis, crypto, and more. This week's top performers include an overlooked dating app and a COVID vaccine maker. Our next guest has two buys and two sells from the group. Let's bring in Gina Sanchez. She's the chief market strategist at Lido Advisors and a CNBC contributor. All right, Gina, great to see you. Let's start with Lemonade, the online insurance platform. They've been having a tough go of it lately, but they're up 36% this week. That was our little mystery chart into the break. Um, Allstate announced its hiking insurance rates to offset inflation costs that has everyone excited, but you're not a big fan of the stock, are you?
5: Not not quite yet. And, you know, I think part of their rally just has to do with the fact that the Fed didn't come out with a 50 basis point hike. So I I think that, you know, that was just a little bit of relief because growth stocks have been getting destroyed. And this is a company that is so early in its growth story. I mean, they're they're just getting, you know, they're, they're growing their signups. They're increasing their premiums. But, you know, the inside, they've expanded too quickly. They're bleeding cash. Activists called for the replacement of the CEO. So internally, it's still a little bit of a mess. Uh, that's not to say that the story isn't there, but they really need to get their act together.
3: All right. They are up 4% today, uh, Like, but a lot of the issues you highlighted have been a concern for the stock for some time. What about Bumble? I mean, this one's a little more straightforward, I guess, as a business model, but uh, it's also up again more than 30% this week. What's your take? You'd still avoid it here?
5: Yeah, well, so Bumble is one of those stories. I don't hate it, but I don't love it either, because you have to ask yourself, can I do without this, this product? Can the world do without this product? And I'm not sure this is one of those that's an absolute must-have, um, but they are executing their growth strategy. And so, you know, it, it, it is doing what they said they were going to do. And, you know, from that perspective, if, if you are willing to take some risk, this could be interesting. The problem that you have is that rising rate environment and it's gonna discount. Um, so it looks really, really overvalued right now.
3: Okay, so, but the, a lot of, it's funny, a lot of these discussions or arguments could be headwinds for the whole uh, space with a lot of these have been high multiple, high growth stocks that have come down to earth a little bit. Yeah. There's a couple of names in the group though that you actually have kind of warmed up to. The first is Square, or, sorry, I guess I should call them Block. Why this one uh, do you think could be a better <laughs> bet for the long run?
5: So this is interesting because, you know, this is a company that's been around for a while. In fact, they had to fend off an Amazon attack in 2014. Um, And so, you know, this is one of those companies that has really made a space. It's made a niche for itself. It has good free cash flow. Um, It has its growing earnings. Um, And yes, it is. It looks a little overvalued. But I think that the fundamental story is very strong and it's not going away. And so from that litmus test of, can the world survive without this? I think there are actually a lot of, of, you know, small mom and pop businesses that are enabled um, by Square slash Block in order to run their businesses um, that I think that this is here to stay and it's a stock you should consider. All right. So that's the case for Square
3: slash Block. What about for Moderna? This one, I'm a little, you know, I wouldn't say I'm surprised to see you warm up to. I mean, the valuation reset has certainly been striking, (laughs) um, but it does, doesn't it still have (laughs) this sort of pandemic on pandemic off kind of trading uh, environment to worry about?
5: So fair point, Kelly. This is definitely one of those pandemic darlings that then just got, you know, taken out behind the shed and shot. Um, And so, you know, what you have to ask yourself is, is there more to this story than the pandemic? Um, And they do have actually a pipeline and they're really cheap. Um, and the market right now doesn't, you know, the market's looking for growth, uh, looking, looking for growth at a reasonable price, but it's also, you know, warming up to value, and it has been for the last year, just because we're expecting rates to go up. And you look at the product pipeline, and, you know, the, one of their big products is going to be another flu vaccine, and, and the, the move for COVID vaccines... Is that they are likely going to become incorporated into flu vaccines? So that actually could put Moderna um, in a front runner for a vaccine that's massively, you know, subscribed to and has enormous growth. So I think that they're quite cheap right now relative to what their opportunity set is.
3: All right. So two buys, two bails uh, from the CNBC Next Gen Fifty. Gina, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. <laughs> Gina Sanchez Thanks, Kelly. with Lido Advisors. Up next, shares of Apple are higher this week, despite supply chain snarls. China shutting down cities because of COVID again. We'll look at their dependence on that Asian supply chain and just how risky it is. And with cases on the rise across Asia and Europe, should Americans be readying for another COVID spike? And what about that fourth vaccine dose that's coming up on The Exchange? Welcome back. The COVID shutdowns in China are re exposing one of Apple's vulnerabilities, and that's its dependence on those Asian supply chains. Steve Kovac is here with more now, Steve. And will this time convince them to diversify, or is this company just almost too big to diversify now?
9: (laughs) Well, they are very locked into China, Kelly. And in fact, Tim Cook was asked that very question on the last earnings call about a month and a half ago, and they said, Are you okay having all of this supply chain locked into China and basically said, yeah, it's great for us because we have the suppliers geographically close to where we actually build the stuff that we sell. And we can easily go from chip to factory and out the door and overseas really quickly. So that's why they're okay with it. And you got to look. Let's rewind back to 2020 when the entire country of China was shut down and everyone was worried about manufacturing. Guess how long their new iPhone was delayed? Just a month.
3: Wow. And so that's, they're resilient here. You know, it's funny because we focus on this concern so much, but it seems to be more a concern about a possible concern than an actual story. Whereas look at what's happened with the auto industry, where exactly. that's a much more obvious hit. Why is it that they've been able to move so quickly Is it because we just showed the map of all these different sort of areas of these manufacturing hubs that they have?
9: Yeah, it's again, it's what Tim Cook was saying. It's the geographic location, how close they are. And also Foxconn, which is the company Apple contracts to build most of the devices, especially iPhones. They're nimble, too. So what they did this week said, hey, we know Shenzhen shut down. We're going to move it to one of our other facilities in a city that's not shut down and we can kind of make up for it there and then we'll adjust back when things open up again. So they're able to be nimble and dynamic as they need to be um, among these shutdowns.
3: What are the analysts saying? Are they expressing any real concern about this? Not really.
9: I mean, as soon as the Shenzhen thing came out uh, earlier this week, a couple of analyst notes came out right away saying, hey, you know, this is a concern, but let's not panic about it yet.
3: Yeah. And, and to your point, they've been down this road before. Right. and If the worst we're talking about is a one month delay to a new phone. And do you think that is the worst case scenario here? I
9: mean, if, if it's not as bad as it was in 2020, you got to think of it that way. So if it's just these one week shutdowns a little bit at a time and at the same time, they are diversifying outside of China a little bit. AirPods, I should have brought mine with me. But if you look at AirPods in the back, it says made in Vietnam. Huh. That new Mac Studio that just came out this week, that's made in Malaysia the Mac Pro, made in Austin, Texas. So they're, it's not the most of their manufacturing, but, you know, they're dabbling around the, the world where they can.
3: Great point. Steve, thank you. Thanks, you, Good Kelly. to see you, our Steve yep. Kovac. All right, let's dive a little deeper into some of these supply chain disruptions with someone who has firsthand knowledge of what's happening on the ground in China right now. Nathan Resnick, Resnick joins me, I should say. He is the CEO of Sourceify. They match U.S. companies with factories overseas. Nathan, it's good to see you again. And where are... Is there more impact already being felt from these shutdowns?
10: You know, this past week from our Guangzhou office, we saw shutdowns throughout the Guangdong province. So Shenzhen, Dongguan, Guangzhou all had shutdowns due to due to a COVID outbreak. China has a zero COVID you know policy. So if there's any COVID cases in that area, they typically shut the whole city down, and that affected a lot of warehouses around Shenzhen and around Dongguan. Fortunately, this time, it didn't close the port like it did last year, which caused huge supply chain disruptions. So, you know, we're continuing to monitor the COVID cases closely. But fortunately, this time around, they didn't close the the ports.
3: Which U.S. industries are most exposed to these shutdowns?
10: Right now, we're seeing electronics and home goods primarily. You know, Foxconn shut down some of their facilities in Shenzhen. But fortunately, they're diversified, so there wasn't a huge effect on Apple's production. But, you know, we're continuing to see... Delays trickle down, and that you know might go into the holiday season, depending on how COVID cases spike through the remain, remaining of the year.
3: Wow, the holiday season, even though it's only March right now.
10: We'll see. You know, companies now are ordering and forecasting their inventory, you know, more ahead of time than ever before, and so that's something that I think COVID has had a very large impact on when it comes to actually uh, producing products in Asia.
3: And would you say that overall so far, uh, let's say up to this point of the week, we've seen the lockdowns continue to intensify or have they come off the boil a bit?
10: They're starting to come off the boil. Fortunately, you know, they do have a very intense lockdown policy there. But fortunately, we're starting to see light at the end of the tunnel.
3: Are there any industries that are completely unexposed that, you know, those those kinds of calls that you're happy uh, to be involved with where you can say, hey, at least you guys don't have to worry about this?
10: I think it depends where the production is located, right? So a lot of companies over the past few years have diversified outside of China. There's been different policies in India, Vietnam, Pakistan, you name it. But the challenge is a lot of the raw materials that those factories get outside of China, you know, still stem from China. And so, you know, everything is intertwined in the supply chain, and that's what we see on the ground floor there.
3: Yeah, I can imagine people so on edge after the last couple of years uh, and what they've already been through. Nathan, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Nathan Resnick with Sourceify. Up next, both Pfizer and Moderna have now asked the FDA to grant emergency use authorization for a fourth dose of their COVID vaccines as cases spike around the world. We have the details and whether another wave is headed to our shores. The exchange is back right after this. Welcome back, everybody. COVID cases have been declining here in the U.S., but it's a very different story overseas right now with surges across China, some of Asia and Europe. Meg Terrell is here now with the latest and whether we should expect another wave. Meg?
1: Hey, Kelly. Well, unfortunately, often what we see in Europe and the U.K. will hit us about three weeks later, and some experts are expecting that here in the U.S. If you look at several European countries over the past few weeks, we have been seeing upticks in cases from Germany to Switzerland, the Netherlands, the U.K., uh, and France. Hospitalizations in the UK also rising uh, up about th- 30% over the past two weeks. Now, the question is, of course, will this happen in the United States? And unfortunately, we have a lot of the same factors that are driving these upticks happening in the US as well. Waning immunity, uh, no longer wearing masks or social distancing, and of course, this more contagious Omicron subvariant called BA2. Unfortunately, we also have lower booster rates than many of these European countries. Uh, so So that could have provided a better backstop against potential more severe disease. The UK has 67% uh, of its eligible population boosted compared with 48% of eligible adults in the United States. Um, What we have seen is that wastewater data here in the U.S. is suggesting that there might be an uptick happening in certain areas. Uh, We'll have to see whether that bears out. BA2, that more contagious Omicron subvariant, is growing in prevalence across the country and is most prevalent in the Northeast, almost 40% of cases last week and perhaps even higher in some states. Uh, So that dynamic is playing out here as well. And a Columbia University model, now this is just a model, and there's a lot of uncertainty around it, as you can see in the darker area there, suggests we may be at a trough in cases right now at about 30,000 per day and that they could start to rise through April. So you have seen Moderna and Pfizer this week come out saying they're filing with the FDA for a fourth dose of their vaccine. Moderna just last night. Uh, for a much broader group, everybody 18 plus saying essentially the CDC and healthcare providers should be able to decide you know who this is appropriate for. Pfizer and BioNTech limited that to just 65 plus Kelly. So we'll see see. how that plays out over the next few weeks
3: what do we know about ba2 meg how does it compare with omicron itself with delta with the other strains that we've seen and is there any reason to expect the u.s population to react to it differently for instance i know hong kong has a low vaccination rate a high death rate right now Um, what about the u.s
1: Yeah, the only major difference that experts have pointed out with BA2 versus the original Omicron is that it appears to be perhaps 30% more transmissible. There don't appear to be any differences in terms of severity or how well vaccines hold up against it. There are some questions about some of the antibody drugs that needs to be uh, better illuminated. Uh, But essentially, studies have suggested if you've been infected with Omicron, you should have good immunity against BA2. Of course, there are folks out there who haven't been, and there's waning immunity overall. So that's the concern. Interesting. So give Given that we had such a big
3: Omicron wave in the U.S., could that provide some national <laughs> natural immunity relative to those countries that were doing more zero COVID policies or more insulated where we've seen huge BA2 spikes? Uh, is that something we can infer as to one reason why their their cases have spiked so much?
1: Absolutely. Uh, in those countries that have tried to go the zero COVID route, now they're getting hit incredibly hard and they don't have the backstop of a lot of their elderly population in particular vaccinated. And so that's why you're just seeing not only these tremendous surges, but in some places like Hong Kong, also a lot of mortality. The elderly population isn't as vaccinated. And there are differences, you know, in countries that have higher vaccination rates, they are seeing lower mortality.
3: Yeah. Anytime it's come up in conversation the past week, people just go, nope, nope. They just put their hands over their ears. They're like, we don't want to hear it. (laughs) We're not, we're not ready. We just got rid of all the mandates. Meg, thanks so much. We appreciate the updates as always. Our Meg Terrell with the latest on the COVID front. Still ahead, stocks are mixed today after two days of big gains, but we are building up steam as we move throughout the afternoon. The Dow's at session highs right now up 87 points, the Nasdaq up 185. Triple or maybe quadruple witching is upon us, though. We'll talk about that next. And with more than $3 trillion worth of options set to expire, we'll look at what that means going forward after this short break. Welcome back to The Exchange. All three major averages uh, solidly positive for the week now. This actually would be the best weekly performance for the Dow and for the S&P since November of 2020 with about 5% gains. And today is a triple witching event. Trillions of dollars of stock index and stock index futures options all expiring at the same time. Um, Is that partly driving the rally this week? Let's ask my next guest. Joining us now is Chris Murphy. He's co-head of derivative strategy at Susquehanna. Chris, first of all, is it triple or quad witching today?
11: Triple witching today. All right, you got so it right.
3: What are we not witching?
11: Uh, we are witching with the uh, futures, with the equity options and with the index options, uh, but not the commodities.
3: Not the commodities. OK, thank you for, for clearing that all up. So do you think that has anything to do with the strong equity market activity we've seen this week?
11: OK, so the equity market rebound, that's going to be based off of you know China, news, the Fed, all these different things now. The options can exacerbate the moves uh, when uh, options are expiring and the market makers need to be a little bit more aggressive with their hedges right before expiration. Uh, so not the catalyst for the move, but can exacerbate the move.
3: It can exacerbate the moves. And, you know, there was a lot of focus on the VIX in particular, Chris, going into the Fed meeting when people were worried about the Fed hiking if the VIX were over 30 and that kind of thing. But the Fed so far seems to help have helped quell volatility, No.
11: Yes, you know I think that uh, when we're looking at the sell-off that we've had so far this year, you know, uh, you know, ten to fifteen percent corrections those happen, you know, pretty uh, commonly uh, in an economy that's still growing. What we were worried about was, uh, you know, the economy moving into a recession. That's when you see, you know, larger than that normal five to ten percent uh, correction happening. Uh, I think Powell did a really good job um, stressing to uh, United States uh, investors that. We're not anywhere near a recession. And if we're not anywhere near a recession, uh, this you know current pullback is kind of the standard, uh, expected, not out of the ordinary type of a pullback that we would see.
3: All right. So maybe, again, that is helping the VIX uh, kind of move to a lower trend line. Where else are you seeing momentum shifts across the options market?
11: Sure. So the second half of this week, uh, we clearly saw um, significantly less calls trading in uh, commodity ETFs, let's just say the GLD, for example, you know, 50% lower uh, than its 20-day average on Wednesday. That's been consistent the rest of the week. Then in the Qs, uh, which tech, you know, especially big cap tech, leading the uh, the rally and the strength today, we saw a uh, extremely notable increase in call volume there. Uh, so that could just be a sign that you know the uh, the near term option trading momentum chasing. Uh, flow is coming out of the metals and into tech.
3: And is that typically a bullish sign or sort of a correlation, a correlated sign? You want to keep chasing that activity?
11: Yes. I mean, we'll have to see if it have le- has legs, but it's definitely a sign that, uh, you know, investors are, uh, the near-term traders are really flocking towards that sector. Uh, you know, whether or not it's very near-term or not, it's not typically necessarily a sign, but it's definitely uh, showing a sentiment change in the very near term.
3: All right, we will leave it there, Chris. Great to have you on today uh, for explaining what uh, we're looking forward to, and uh, as at the close, and for so much else going on in the market. We appreciate it. Thank you, Chris Murphy with Susquehanna. That does it for the Exchange, everybody. Thanks for your time. You've been listening to the Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses.